Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Everybody, I'm really excited to bring a discussion to you today with Dr. Madalena Biarzzi. Uh, I hope I said that right. And you are the president and the co-founder of the Ocean Conservation Society uh, out in Southern California. And you've written um, some amazing books. The most recent is Stranded, Finding Nature in Uncertain Times. And, you know, there's so much I want to ask you, but I just want to welcome you to the Forest Educator Podcast. For Thank you for being here. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm curious of a couple things. It says in your bio, you talk about that you were raised in Italy, and then most of your work currently is in Los Angeles. What was some of your journey to doing this work in, and how did you get in, involved in like marine mammal research and conservation and nature education from an ocean perspective? Oh, that's such a long story. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry. You can just jump around to whatever you feel most excited to share. So as you can probably guess from my accent, mm-hmm. yes, I was born in Italy and I was passionate about nature since an early age. I have uh, very good parents that took my brother and I to wild places when we were really young. So I spent my summer times in Sardinia in these pristine shores, exploring the creature of the sand and swimming in a sea full of life. So my passion for nature and for animals starts early on in my life. And I wasn't able to go to the wild places that I imagined in my youth. I was dreaming about Africa and large carnivores. Instead, I grew up in Italian cities. So I did what a child in a city (laughs) could do. So I I collected animals in my backyards. I I was looking at lizards. I have a hamster, uh, I have a tortoise, uh, I did little experiment with my dogs, but I try to find (laughs) nature (laughs) around me. And then I went on uh, uh, studying uh, um, sea turtles, Uh, I did uh, my bachelor's uh, in natural science in Italy from sea turtle, I went up to evolutionary scale, studying dolphins and whales. And then I move, I study animals in different parts of the world, from the Caribbean to the Gulf of Mexico, in in the Mediterranean. And then I moved to LA, and here a new story began. So was that in in school? Were you were you going to those places like the Caribbean and different parts of the Mediterranean? Were you just going on your own or did you go with university or I actually did most of my st- this stuff on my own I always have mm-hmm. I was always very focused to uh, study animals I wanted to study animals and I did went to the university in Padova for my bachelor and then uh, later on I got my PhD a postdoc uh, here from UCLA but I always st- I started to explore in nature by myself when I was really young just by reading books uh, and uh, 
by just being out, taking notes or whatever I observe, like childish notes, opportunistic observation, but whatever I could find. And then I got up a little bit more of an academic training and in Mexico, and when I studied sea turtle in Mexico and when I studied dolphins in the Mediterranean and in Mexico, I work for a nonprofit in my country, in Italy, and, and for a research institute there. And I was uh, pretty much the principal investigators for research in different parts of the world. And I was taking volunteers. They helped me to do, to do the work. But I was never been very good at being a volunteer. I've always had this idea that to do my own thing, to run my own project, and I'm still doing that. Yeah, so you you had like ideas of things you wanted to study, and then you just found a way to go out and and be there and start studying and collecting data and everything. Is that what you're yeah. what you've done in the, in the past? So sometimes, as I mentioned, when I was really young, I wanted to study large carnivores. But in Italy at that time, uh, it was a long time ago, it was right. difficult, especially for a woman to, to go out and study the behavior, animal behavior. So I started with what I could start with. And so I started with lizards because they right. were uh, near me. And I went to uh, this natural reserve in Tuscany to study the home range and homing uh, of this small lizard that was present there. And But then I didn't stop there. And I, I had yeah. this passion for large uh, animals. So I <laughs> they, they, grew over, they grew over time. That's right. That's right. You have a book that you wrote that's called Beautiful Minds, The Parallel Lives of Great Apes and Dolphins. And I found that really interesting because I, I never really made that connection before that the dolphins really are a counterpart to other intelligent uh, species on land as well. And I just it found it to me, I, it made me really want to gather that. So it's on my book list to work on. But how did you really got involved as a writer as well. So you're not just on a boat out there in the ocean doing all the research and everything else, but you're also writing these amazing stories and experiences that you've had. And so I'm just curious, how did you get into doing that? How did that kind of happen for you? When I was younger in Italy, I need to find the money to pay for school. <laughs> and so I started writing articles about nature uh, and I was riding my bike everywhere so I wrote for this magazine at the beginning that did this bike tour in nature and uh, and then I started to write for about nature for newspaper and other mega magazines and that gave me the opportunity to I always loved to write so they give me the opportunity to write and at the same time to explore nature there were two things that I loved to do so I always had this idea of using these skills together and right. and then later on I started writing books and the first one actually I wrote one before in Italy but the one that you mentioned I call wrote it with Craig Stanford, is a primatologist at the University of Southern California, and he wrote all the parts about chimps and gorillas and their behavior, and I wrote the part about dolphins and their similarities, and also the similarities with humans. 
But I also think for me, it's uh, one of the main reasons why I write books now is that I really feel not just to share my stories with others and my passion for nature, but also need to protect uh, uh, nature. And uh, I think uh, doing exclusively science or writing scientific papers, in my personal uh, uh, view, is not the right, uh, or, or maybe it's not just what I I, I want to do. I want. I feel like I want to share these experiences. I think people need to know what's going on uh, with uh, the natural world around us, close uh, and far. And and I feel it's one of my responsibility to try to share this information and do whatever I can uh, to help the animals that I came to love and respect. Right. Right. I'm, I've often thought that as well because animals really depend on us to protect them. It's not, they're not really able to protect themselves, advocate for themselves. And some people are, are photojournalists and they take beautiful photos. And some people are video people. They get capture video footage and put together these wonderful shows. And then others uh, like yourself, you're like a storyteller who is able to assemble the research and the, the human story and the animal stories, whether it's in the ocean or wherever. Yeah, like it's, it's, Without it's, that, we don't really know. We wouldn't even know these things exist if we didn't have all you of exactly, you, you made a really good point. You're exactly right. I think the all of us need to use the experiences and the knowledge that we have to help nature. In my case, I'm a behavioral ecologist, so I study animals. I know how to write a little bit, so I write books and I try to uh, make uh, a little change doing these things. But I think uh, every one of us has, the, uh, as you mentioned, some uh, have experience with video or uh, other things. We can all help nature in our own uh, personal uh, way. Yeah, yeah. I've been really happy to see it's hard for me to know how widespread like nature education is because I live in a bubble where I love to follow people, look for people's accounts. I look for people like, so in my world, I'm just surrounded by wonderful people doing amazing work. And yet sometimes I look out and see, yeah, I don't know if we're going to make it. <laughs> I don't know if we're doing enough. Like it's good to be excited and to keep going because we have to, but sometimes it feels like, we're just are doing enough, really. Yeah, I completely agree. I think we should we need to reach the other side because uh, I think at the end we all want this. We all want the same on a livable planet. Uh, we don't yeah. want it. I think uh, nobody wants to get rid of all the animals, all the trees, of all, all the clean water. Uh, so we need to find a way to uh, reach the other side, to inform the other side. And I think uh, books, uh, documentaries uh, are uh, one of the many ways to do that. I've been really excited because I remember, I think it was during the pandemic, this is when you wrote your book, but I remember during the pandemic that everybody, everybody was just talking about the the Netflix documentary, I think it was called My Octopus mm -hmm. Teacher. Teacher, yeah. And I thought, what a, I mean, we, it took us a little while to actually watch it, but when we did watch it, we were amazed. And it seemed like during the pandemic, 
more people were getting into documentaries at first. I mean, maybe it, maybe I'm dreaming. I don't know, but it just seemed like they got very, very popular. And that, you know, that really kind of like opened my eyes to the world of a whole nother creature, which I, as a wilderness educator, I don't really spend most of my time thinking about octopuses, but what an amazing creature. So during the pandemic, you had um, some unique experiences as well. And you that led to your book, Stranded, Finding Nature in Uncertain Times. And I'm just curious about what was that process like for you to have the experiences you had and then have it evolve into a book too? Oh, yes, I was, as I mentioned, I studied dolphins and whales out on the field. So my life is usually spent outside, out on the ocean, studying large animals. And when the pandemic started, I, like a whale out of the water, I found myself stranded at home like everyone else. And at the beginning, it was a little bit of a shock, of course, because I said, what do I do now? And a little bit at the time, I started rediscovering the nature around me, the one in my backyard, the one in my neighborhood while I was walking my dog. And uh, I rediscovered not only the, the richness of nature around me, even if I live in LA, I live in a huge metropolis, and you can still... Uh, observe so much nature just around you in your backyard and not just the animals but plants and so on in a way i went back to the uh, childhood curiosity and i was thinking oh my god i used to study lizards on, on my parents backyard right. and here they are there are lizards in my backyard in an la that i never even noticed they were there to be honest i'm so right. accustomed to look at whales so that lizards were why they're here. I spent a lot of time looking at the lizards in my backyard and then there were in my uh, neighbor neighborhood there are uh, squirrels uh, and uh, coyotes all kind of animals so walking the dogs I started reopening my eyes and my mind and I reacquired a childhood curiosity that in a way was lost yes and uh, if there is one good thing for me that came from the pandemic is that. And and as you mentioned, I felt like sharing uh, this information with others because I thought you don't need to have a PhD. You don't need to be a biologist. You don't need anything to observe and appreciate nature near you. You just need to have curiosity and an open mind. And you can find all the information you want in internet, in books, in documentary, if you want to know more. But just open your eyes to what's around you. So I thought if I share some of the story, some of the encounters with nature that I had in Los Angeles, this can pretty much apply to anyone. And maybe we can all, I believe if we start observing nature we can get a better appreciation for nature if we have a better appreciation for nature we are more willing to protect nature that's right yeah yeah i believe in that 100 percent. and i've been trying to put into words things from my own training in like nature education we focused a lot on 
animal tracking. So we don't see the animal, but we see the tracks that they leave. And then we ask a lot of questions like, what made this track? What? And then someone will say, oh, that was a raccoon or a coyote, like you said. And then we go, why? Why do we think it's a raccoon? Like, how do we know? And then we say, is it a big cut? Is it a big animal? Is it small for that? Is it a male, female? Is Where was it going? Why was it here? What time of the day was it probably here? And so there's all these questions that start to come through. And I found uh, when I was running a lot of my after-school programs that many of the children today, they don't seem to want to ask a lot of those questions. Like they don't that's not the first thing that they think of when they get information or they see something. And instead it, it just seems like they just accept, Oh, okay. Raccoon, boom, let's go back on with our lives. And for me, when I hear you talk about that, about being in your backyard or walking, it's, it really, it tells me a lot about your mind as, and your skills as an observer. And you're asking those questions uh, not everybody has that. And and I think that's something that we can, that we probably all used to have, and we just need a little help to get there, I think. Yes, I th- and I think the pandemic kind of showed you that because yeah. a lot of people, even people that are not interested in nature, found nature during the pandemic. Yes. Uh, there are studies during the pandemic uh, that people started listening to birds and wondering about birds and about binoculars and about yes. books about birds so i think we are so busy with every uh, our everyday life that we forget sometimes to stop and breathe and look around us and i'm guilty as charged because i'm the same way i'm working for my nonprofit i write books running around all the time and i never stop and the pandemic uh, taught me how to stop a little bit and breathe and smell the grass with my dog <laughs> and, and and look around. Um, and again, we are, you're right, that we are all a little bit losing this curiosity. That's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I think we should regain that curiosity. We need that childish curiosity. And that's what I tell students. That's what I tell my volunteers. We are so distracted with our phones and uh, and everything that we don't. We, people, I see people walking on when I take my walk with the dog, and everybody's on the phone. Instead, look, there is yes. a squirrel there. There is a coyote. There is look at that plant, the, the flowers, and it's it's so important to have this connection with nature. And I think we sometimes forget how much we need it and how much nature can save us from, from ourselves. Yes, no, that's true. And and it is true that, like you said, that technology has in some ways taken a lot of our free time, like time that used to be spent sitting on the porch, sitting in the backyard, going for a walk. And now it's we're thinking about whatever's on there, which is, we all do that. I know I do that at times too, for sure. And yeah, I, I really, I'm really curious about your students and volunteers that you were mentioning. Do they, do you have to help them to put their phones away and really be present if they're out on a boat with you or anything I imagine that'd be dangerous. 
or, you know, something like that? The, I don't have to do that now. I'm actually lucky. I'm working with researchers that have been with me now for a really long time on, on my research boat, I'm talking about. Right. It requires a lot of trainings, a lot of effort. Uh, that's why when people ask me, what do you need to become a dolphin researcher? Oh, I want everybody said, oh, I would love to study dolphins. It is great, but a lot of people don't understand the amount of work yes. that job requires. Not just that you go out and you frolic with dolphins. You are <laughs> on a boat, the boat moves, and you can get sick, and you have to take data with the computer. We work the entire time from when we leave the dock to when we come back. And that requires a lot of effort, a lot of knowledge. All my researchers are trained. I use volunteers for other projects. And it's, I realize over time, it's becoming more and more difficult to find volunteers. They are passionate, interest, and more than anything else, willing to do hard work. Everybody wants right. uh, um, instant gratification and having um, animals in the field doesn't give you instant gratification many times. Yeah, you can see the dolphins, say how cute they are, but to understand them, to better know them, to, it requires a long of time and a lot of effort. Yes. Yeah. So we, to- have, we used to have a, a small farm at our place. And my wife was really trying to develop that. And we had people that would come and volunteer to help for a month or two months. And I think after three years, she just said, no, we're not going to be, we're not going to do this anymore. And she said that unless she was working with those people every day, side by side, they just did not have the ability to keep going on their own and would just struggle. it was much harder work than they thought it was going to be. And so I think sometimes there's that disconnect, right, between what we think we want to do, study the dolphins, and we think everything is going to be in Key West with 90 degree water, with the dolphins running around, like you said, and then, and then I don't know, studying them and having a margarita and whatever, and then turning around and then going, okay, you might be in like a really cold part of the ocean. And just working really hard trying to. And it's know, not, it's not for, yeah, it's not for yeah. everybody. But I think uh, if you are passionate, you have interest, you're passionate, uh, you're willing to put the hard work, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. It can be an amazing career, but you really need to have uh, that drive. You really right. need to have interest in putting. Uh, the the effort to do that. That's true. That's true. Is part of your the Ocean Conservation Society? Is there is education? Do you work like with a lot? Not you, but do people work with students or classes of children, or do you go into schools or have them go um, go somewhere to learn uh, more about uh, nature, the ocean side of uh, nature education, or? Yes, I so I co-founded the Ocean Conservation Society with my husband Charlie Salen. Yes. You, you interviewing 
the past and uh, we conduct um, marine mammal research, but we also conduct uh, educational program for the conservation of the ocean. And our uh, marine mammal research is mostly uh, done to get the information to then conduct uh, these conservation projects. Right. Uh, and uh, we do in the past and even right now we do different uh, um, educational campaigns right now we have uh, a be balloon aware campaigns uh, because we every time we go out we study marine mammals we find balloons uh, and of course uh, many other marine debris and uh, that's a problem. So we are trying to raise awareness about this in California. We have a Be Whale Aware campaigns where, um, same thing, we try to make people aware that it's great to go out and observe dolphins and whales. And I'm against captivity, so I even push people to go out on a whale watching boat and see them. But when you do that, you need to respect their habitat, their environment. They maintain a distance and many people don't know that so we're trying to educate the public about that um in the past we ran uh, um uh, kayak cleanup so we we're doing uh, sure. all, uh, all a lot of different projects we did mentorships uh, to take uh, kids out on the ocean and teach them how they could become marine researcher teaching all the different tasks so we we ran a lot of different programs in the past and no. Yeah, that's that's really amazing. I, I mean, every one of those things that you just mentioned, I know how much work it is to be successful with it because it really is its own thing with with its own target audience and effort to get the word out, everything. I know how hard it is. So it's very impressive to me that you're able to have an organization that can do that. That's really, really. Yeah, and, and being a profit, uh, as, as you probably know, the, the most difficult thing is always to find money and keep the yes. profit alive. And that also requires a lot of, <laughs> a lot right. of that. Fundraising and Fundraising. talking to people about it who are in a position to really support that work. And Absolutely. Yeah, and so on, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a tremendous amount of work for you to be able to do, fund everything. There's always that you're having to balance the research type of language and then the logistical language, and then there's the fundraising language, and then trying to put it all together. Yeah, and um, also try to explain uh, to grantors or to potential donors uh, the importance of what we do, because the same thing, they want instant gratification. They want you to say, you saved the dolphins. Right. And, and do I save the dolphins? In a way, I do, but it's not that I save the single flipper that I see out of the water. I don't do that. But it's so important. For instance, we started a nonprofit in 1998, uh, and we are now one of the longest running research projects on marine mammals around the world. And, and that takes a long time. But this data is really important because right. only observing animals over a long period of time you can really understand what's going on you can see trends in the population you can see what's going on they are they getting skinny they are getting skin diseases there's something that, that we discover here and on the west coast so everything takes time and it's a, sometimes it's a different sale 
to grantors and say, look, it's very important to do this research, to keep this research uh, alive, but we are doing a lot of work uh, and right. this can be very useful. And now we have collaboration with scientists all along the California coast, for instance, they are doing a similar thing with, with the botanist dolphins population. Right. That's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very interesting to do the work. There's so many times I've seen people who say, oh, I want to go and learn how to live in the forest. Um, that's my dream. Oh, if I could just live in the forest, that'd be the greatest thing. And I would often say, you better, you're going to have to work really hard. It's not like you're just going to sit there and then you're not going to be able to get an Uber to go somewhere or get food delivered or something. And I, I said, it's just incredible amount of work to learn how to do that to where it's a nice experience. And, and so there's that, like we said, that disconnect between what is needed, who's willing to do the research. It's, you can be an educator and take children and teach them things. But at the same time, we also need people doing research. We also need people advocating and people looking for funding and getting support, everything. So this kind of work seems like it's very multi-layered. I imagine you just have a lot of different hats you have to wear. Absolutely. Yeah. I change hats every, every hour. hour. Pretty much. Every hour. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's really amazing to me just how, how we do as founders for your work as you and your husband founding that your conservation society and I, I, you have an impressive number of people working there that are your your colleagues and everything and and how do you feel looking forward do you feel hopeful do you feel really worried what is there anything that's giving you hope about what's the, the future I think I feel both. I feel really worried. Uh, at the same time, I feel hopeful because without hope, uh, I wouldn't be able to do anything I'm doing uh, from writing book to study dolphins and whales out of the ocean. But I do believe with hope uh, comes the responsibility to act. Uh, and uh, I have yeah. asked many times, the Ocean Conservation Society, I have students almost every day send me email and say, uh, what we, what you can do, what, what can we do to save the ocean? There is hope. And I said, I always give the same answer. And I say, yes, there is hope, but hope requires action. It's not just waiting for somebody else to do something. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to um, push the bottom of our computer to say, I save dolphins uh, or uh, sometimes you can donate money and that's great but i think we all need uh, to do more um we don't have the luxury to sit down and don't anything and and this requires more than probably what any of us want to do and it requires really to um, go out and first of all be informed and yes. uh, and uh, read, be informed about issue that uh, you're worried about. It can be anything. For me, are um, dolphins and whales in the oceans. For others, can be saving uh, the coyotes in the neighborhood or, uh, or okay. um, 
birds, uh, diversity, whatever. Sure. Uh, but I think uh, we need to start. Uh, that's one of another reason why I wrote uh, Strand at Finding Nature uh, in a certain times, because we can really start uh, in our backyard, in our neighborhood, and grow from there and involve other people and involve our representative uh, and try to affect the political process. Uh, because if we want to see or not uh, by ourselves, we won't be able to do anything. But collective effort can make a difference. So really get out there, involve others, talk to representatives, don't stop recycling or little things that, that at this point in time, in my opinion, don't have much meaning because we are way past that point. Right. Yeah. I spent I spent a few trips to Newfoundland in Canada. And while in getting ready to go on those trips, I learned a lot about the the wildlife, the fish in that area and the cod and which is there, which was the one of the main reasons that whole island was settled, that whole area. And it was really amazing to me how commercial fishing came in with a new system, I don't know, 10 years ago and just wiped everything. Like they just said it's it made it so that all the smaller fishermen ha- who've been sustainably harvesting for, I don't know, 200, 300, 400 years, just now are, they can't, there's hardly any fish because they just take everything. Yeah, um, we're feeding. Yeah, yeah. we're feeding. Bycatcher, bycatcher, one of the, yeah, one of the many problems that we have that, that, that we see on a regular basis. I have my brother studying dolphins in the Mediterranean, and there the situation, it's, uh, really uh, dire too and yeah. uh, I have been in Newfoundland too and it's yeah same thing yeah we have amazing abundance uh, of uh, fish they don't and now most most of the large predatory fish is gone yeah it was really like it's a beautiful place and the ocean is beautiful there but it really opened my eyes because when I would drive around we would see these little villages and you could see people standing around they're people that fished for generations and they just they had to catch really small fish and whatever and we got to talk to a lot of them and you got to see the personal level in addition to the natural beauty and also learning all about it and i think that's a step that sometimes people don't make like people will share a picture of saving the bees we got to save the bees right so it's just don't do this don't do that save the bees and i always encourage people to say why go my maybe you can ask somebody in your area who has bees do they need help and ask them what are they seeing and how is it going for that just to get more information because it's easy just to see something and then share it and think that's you're helping and i guess you are but there's there's a whole other step to it, which is just to get a little, get your feet wet, just get. Yeah, there are so many ways to do that, and and if you want to use your <laughs> your phone or your tablet, there are sure. many platforms like uh, iNaturalist, uh, or here in LA we have Rascals, uh, or there is uh, Eaglob, all these platforms where you can uh, go out on your walk and collect data and give a contribution to the 
collecting knowledge and be what are called a citizen scientist, yeah. which is a great yeah. way to be involved. And I describe some of these things in a Stranded because I think, again, if you look at animals, if you get involved with others, if you look at animal behavior, then you are more willing to do things. You are more willing, as you mentioned, to involve your neighbors or other people. And, uh, and that's a step further in making a change for yeah. something. Yes, yeah. It, it, yeah, there, it's really wonderful when you see that evil evolution, when someone just gets started and then see where that could go. And I, I really, I'm really glad to be talking to you because, again, I think I said this before we started recording, uh, when I think of forest education, nature education, we often think now in many ways like, oh, it's a nature-based uh, kindergarten, or it's climbing a mountain, or there are certain ideas that we have. And and nature education is just incredibly diverse. And the, the work that you're doing with the oceans and the research and everything is, to me, really inspiring. I've heard things about people really working to like clean up trash and pollution in the ocean, which I think is incredibly needed so i'm really i'm worried i when i heard about how warm the water was in florida i was i didn't i felt sick to my stomach for weeks just every time i'd see the the headlines did you hear anything about that experience you know what happened in july i think it was when it was yes. like 100, 100 degrees or more? Yeah, it was 100 degrees. It's been like that for a long time. The temperature increasing even here in my study area. This brings uh, tons of changes that yes. uh, people can realize or not, but they're, <laughs> these changes are really knocking on everyone's door. Uh, you know, invasive species, uh, tropical species around here that you've never sure. seen before. I see movements uh, with uh, dolphins and whales because, of course, they have their feeding ground, they have their breeding ground, and this, th there are all these changes in oceanographic condition. So we see these changes now. We see them with erosion, and we think this is something that will happen really far away uh, in the future, but it's not. Look, we just have the first hurricane uh, in on the That's West right. Coast. This That's was right. The ever if this is now a bell of what we are doing i don't know what else it is and a lot of people say oh yes these are natural phenomenon a hurricane is a natural phenomenon el nino is a natural phenomenon and that's partially true but if we add an el nino to a, an already unstable situation already warming ocean already mm -hmm. other issue that we have it's these contribute to uh, pretty scary things that can happen in a really short time. And here yes. uh, in the uh, West Coast, uh, it will be coast erosion, uh, water temperature, sea level, but, and, and everything that happened in the ocean. You would see you're a forest educator, what happened yes. all that. So, right. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and politicians tend to look at the future and say, yeah, we will resolve this problem when they come. And uh, and I think these problems are here. 
we need to deal with them now. And the solution is now, you know, that the costs get eroded, let's build a seawall because we can't stop the ocean. <laughs> so yeah. we need to find the solutions so they are a little bit better what we have in mind. Yeah, it's something that oftentimes pol- political people will think, oh, we can solve this with money. So we'll just, when the time comes, we'll give you a billion dollars and then it'll take care of it. And I think we really needed a billion dollars 20 years ago and we needed people to actually get in and help. And now there, it puts a lot of pressure on you, the people who are doing the research and the science to come up that people are relying on scientists to go, you're going to solve it for us. And we're telling them, we need to act. You need to help us. And it's two different languages. Nobody's really under, I, I don't know. I feel like sometimes uh, scientists are speaking like Chinese and everyone else yeah, is speaking English. They don't understand what is, or maybe they just understand they don't want to do it. That Yeah, you're right. There is sometimes this disconnect between uh, science and the public, uh, and we tend to speak in a way many times that is comprehensible. And sometimes there are so many bad news that I understand people say, I don't want to hear anymore. This is enough. We we have eco-anxiety. It's a real thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, I think we all want the same thing again. We we all want a livable world. And if we don't work together to get back to that, we won't have a new generation won't have a future. Yeah, that's what that's ultimately what we're trying to help to avoid, I hope. So yeah, you know, the, the last thing I just want to say is that when I was about 25, I think I gave $20 to Greenpeace back then. That was in like, 19, 1985 or something. And it was amazing because they they would just send me mail forever because they just were always fundraising. And it was always like, save the seals, save the polar bear. There was just, it was always save everything. And I remember just sometimes getting mail and going, boy, it sure would be nice if they sent a postcard that said, hey, you know what? The seals are okay right now for just this month. They're okay. Don't send any money. But next month, send double or something. Like it was just so funny how their message was the same. And I think, like you said, people do get tired of hearing the that it's depressing or whatever because they don't know. They feel disempowered, and we're everyone's struggling in different ways. So it's really yeah. challenging. It's a really challenging time to be a a nature educator in some ways. Uh, It's good in some ways, but it's hard. It's hard. It's just so hard. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard. But I I think at the same time, we need more and more nature. And we need the people to look around them. And and again, that was one of the idea that I had in mind, writing Stranded. The, the how beautiful is what we have around us and we don't really want to lose it and it's so important yeah. Yeah. And, and and we can all do it we don't again you don't need to be a biologist or uh, having all this information you can do your own research when I sure. moved here I didn't know about many of the species even uh, around in my backyard there are I, we don't have uh coyotes running around the cities in in Italy or uh, 
So I I did my own research, starting pretty much from zero, and and this is something that we can all we can all do. And discovering the species, also we discover how amazing these animals are because every day we discover something about uh, other non-human animals that we didn't know. And I, you mentioned my book. Beautiful Minds, The Parallel Lives of Great Apes and Dolphins, and how intelligent dolphins uh, and chimps are and how similar they are to us. But look at any species, and that's yeah. what I'm saying in, in my book. Look, I make an example with wasps and the society of wasps or, or lizards or certain species of birds. And the more we know about other non-human animals more we realize uh, how much we <laughs> really don't know yeah. and by now b- before we thought we are only the only conscious species on the planet now we are wondering uh, what are the non-conscious species uh, and and in uh, more again more we know and more we discover about uh, like you mentioned uh, the octopus teacher i think that was a yeah. great because show you how an animal that is so alien looking and so different from us, uh, how it behaves. And uh, you see this on an everyday basis now. New information come out. If it's a book that I will suggest to read, uh, except for mine, of course, (laughs) it's An Immense World by Ed Young. Oh, that's right. That's right. It's an amazing book. They show mm-hmm. you that we all live in our own sensory bubbles, but there are many bubbles and we don't yeah. see them. And we should open our eyes to see how animals, other animals live and how other animals experience uh, life. And uh, we will realize that we are not so unique uh, as we think. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing, animals are a, com- a completely different world. Like you said, non-human animals. And it's really been a pleasure for me to introduce children to to that world, to spend time out there. And yeah, I really appreciate everything that you're doing. What is the best way? Is the best way for people to find out more about your work or help support your work? Is that to go to the Ocean Conservation Society? Is that yes? Uh, uh, if somebody's interested in what. Uh, we are doing uh, the website is www.oceanconservation.org. If they want to donate money, that would be fantastic. We're really sure. in need of funding. But they can learn about what we do with Marine Mamas, what we do for oceans. If they want to know more about my books, I think you have a link to my author page. And Yes, I I will push everyone to be involved uh, with us or whatever they feel comfortable with. Uh, again, we all have different eaters. Now everybody loves dolphins, but exactly. everybody loves the natural. I think a lot of people love the natural world. Maybe not everyone, yes. but most of us. Yes, yeah, I think so. Again, like you said, yeah, it's true. Not everybody, but for the most part, I... It's just so, to me, anytime someone thinks, oh, we're going to go on vacation, it always seems, like, oh, we're going to go someplace like the ocean where it's warm, we can relax and we can be surrounded by these beautiful things. And hopefully we can keep learning and, and also 
help, yeah, help preserve that. I, as I explained in the book, uh, I made a point on how I learn, relearn to relax, even to meditate in a way, because I'm not good at meditation mm. in the traditional way. But for instance, gardening in my backyard during the pandemic taught me how to uh, relax my mind, take out my white coat and do something a little bit different. Yeah. And it, it, that's really a way to relax uh, and uh, spend time with yourself uh, and um, so even plants, uh, even uh, you don't need to have even uh, a big backyard or even a backyard. You can have plants sure. in your home and observe them growing and make little observations. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Infraordinary, not the extraordinary. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's really true. Thank you so much for your time. It's just been a pleasure. I could keep talking to you for a lot. We have a lot. I have a lot more questions, but I really appreciate you coming and sharing this. And uh, I just uh, thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks so much for having me, Ricardo. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.